Optimism vaccine. I'm Steve. There's a baby. There's a fucking crying baby. Speaking of babies, Jack Easton's back. Th- thank you, Steve. I'm not a baby. <laughs> babies don't pay taxes. I pay taxes. <laughs> I would like some recognition for this. Uh, so you say. I don't know. I think you, you pay taxes about the same as Wesley Snipes pays taxes. Oh, man, don't, don't put me in that boat. No, they're not after me. They'll never catch me. God, Jack, you haven't been on it forever. How long has it I been? Know. Has it been like it's been over a month, hasn't it? It's been yeah, it's like a month and a half. I've been I've been out roaming. I've been out traveling the world, stalking, Unbelievable. stalking well, the New England area for trinkets and souvenirs. <laughs> well, while you were out uh, globe trotting, gallivanting around the United States East Coast, I don't know, man. A lot a lot of people asking about you, wondering if you're okay. Uh, a lot of questions coming up. Uh, one came up over and over again, so I figure I'll just ask you now, and hopefully you've got a good answer. Uh, are Eric Clapton's son and the Lindbergh baby sitting on a cloud and holding hands right now? We we can only hope. Okay. I, that would be my stance. I mean, it's hard to say, but I think, frankly, for the just for the good of everyone, yeah, we, sh- we should imagine they are. Good. Uh, also joining us, uh, it's Jake and Dalton are back. Hey, hey, the d- dynamic duo. That's right. America's youngest podcaster and his pod dad. Is this going to be like a common thing? Because I feel like if Jake makes Dalton watch the movies we normally watch, that's probably going to be a problem. Oh, I mean, it could kind of, you know, disrupt his development, but. Yeah, no, oh, we well. watch some dumb shit. I'm just thinking maybe he should have stuff with like language and above like a fifth grade level and yeah. stuff like that. I mean, uh, we just introduced him to John Leguizamo, so that, that's not good. <laughs> yeah. The thing is that being young, black and white imagery really speaks to him at this stage. Uh, so he was really taken by the, some of the high contrast images in these films. That's great. So uh, could not think of a better, better set of a trio of movies to introduce to your baby. So take this uh, not just as a recommendation, but also for any parenting tips out there, put on one of these three films and you're good. It's well to think we, you may be like just forging the foundation for every nightmare he has in his future. <laughs> yeah. I also hope he resents you. Like you're like one of those sports dads that like makes your kid play baseball and shit. Or like you want him to throw left handed. So you like tie one of his hands behind his back. Uh, but instead you're like making him podcast. And then in 15 years, he's be like, dad, I never wanted to be a podcaster. It's what you wanted. It's going to be really good. I'm so excited for that. Down to the podcast minds. That's right. Get the fucking content minds, little Dalton, putting you to work. Well, in case you're <laughs> wondering, <laughs> uh, what are we doing this week? Uh, we're talking, uh, we're talking vampires. We're talking where the art house meets the bad house. Uh, I'm sucking blood here. We're talking uh, 90s New York vampire movies. And a lot of people are probably thinking, oh, good, they're finally going to cover Wes Craven's Vampire in Brooklyn. Fuck you. No, we're not. We're staying on the, you know, uh, Lower East Side of Manhattan. We're not, we're not fucking with Brooklyn. So, uh, hey, we, we watched some, some movies that I don't think a lot of people really think about when they think about foundational vampire films. Um, but I, I guess these are 
sort of their own thing. And when when we say vampire film, think more along the lines of Martin than say something Bella Lugosi might be involved in. And you're probably on the right track. Uh, but you know, the the first one we watched was Night Owl, and I think that was kind of the catalyst for doing this whole episode because Vinegar Syndrome, like like many things we do, it's like oh. Vinegar Syndrome put out a Blu-ray of a movie none of us have ever watched. We should probably just do an episode. And uh, yeah, this is wild because uh, one, I had never heard of this. Two, I'm pretty sure it was made for about $12. Uh, Three, John Leguizamo is somehow in it. Uh, And if you were wondering, what was John Leguizamo doing in between Carlito's Way and the Super Mario Brothers movie? This is it. He was doing Night Owl. Uh, so, Jake Dalton, what the fuck is Night Owl? Yeah, Night Owl. Uh, no, it's about a. Uh, there's this uh, guy uh, named Jake. He's a vampire, coincidentally enough. Uh, goes around, hits up seedy nightclubs, takes a gal home, and then uh, bites her neck and feeds on her. One night, he feasts on who we find to be the sister of John Leguizamo. And then uh, much of the driving action is John Leguizamo trying to find the guy who made his sister disappear. And uh, then the film kind of aimlessly just sort of takes off and does its own thing for a bit before it quietly resolves. But uh, <laughs> what do you think about Night Owl, Steve? I mean, resolve is, that's that's one way of putting it, I suppose. <laughs> I would say it, it stops. quietly ends, yeah, <laughs> yeah. there. <laughs> it just stops. I, I don't know. I, I mean, there's, there's a lot to love here. I think it, it looks gorgeous, especially when you consider that I mean, this is this is all pretty much amateur acting and zero budget, and it has a lot of the hallmarks of no budget, to, you know, student films, things like that, where it's like, okay, well, uh, we're we're gonna shoot in the dark and just do like a, a really like bright key light on someone's face, so we don't have to worry about what's in the background, and also we're gonna fill most of the movie with music because we can't record sound well. And there's all these little things they do, but while these are kind of necessary to, you know, create the movie, given the restrictions, um, it, it does kind of come together and uh, it's, it's got a vibe, I think, as the kids would say. There's, there's something about it where it, it is, it's got kind of like a, like a magnetic pulse to it that draws you in. Uh, and, and maybe that is just the bump and soundtrack. I, I don't know. Uh, but at the same time, I, ah, God, it, it's hard because then it lags. Like, I don't ever want to see Jake's ass again. Your ass, Jake, the podcaster, is fine. But uh, this guy's, because his whole thing is like he brings women home, he fucks them, and he drains their blood, which is great. But, uh, you know, it's these, these long, drawn-out clinical sex scenes uh, where Jake's buttocks is the focus. And... Uh, it's it's a little much for me. It drags. I mean, I th- I think there's there's an issue. We don't ever see uh, like Wizamo's ass, and yeah. I think that that is a failing of the film. Dude, um, th- it's this very is a great Leguizamo performance, though, because when is John Leguizamo at his best? And that's when he's overacting as like a Latino man, but he comes off as an Italian man, and then you're not sure like where he lands, and uh, that's that's where he shines. Clearly, as Luigi, he did this. Uh, Carlito's Way again. Like, 93 was the year of Latino-Italian Leguizamo. It's worth going into, so, because this is interesting, and I, I think I pitched this episode originally, and 
part of my realization was, yes, Night Owl. I'd never seen it before. This Blu-ray showed up and from Vinegar Syndrome. Watch it. What the hell is this? Is there something really here? And it was more to learn that uh, there's two other movies, like black and white vampire movies, that were made within the same two-year span. You know, uh, Night Owl is like between 93 and 94 release date, and then our next two were 94 and 95. Uh, but Night Owl did actually start production. The script was written in 1985. Jeffrey Arsenault finished the script then, and he started making the movie in 1985, and he started auditioning and looking for actors, and some of them came in almost that early, I think, uh, like James Raftery, the, the main character, I think came on in like the mid-80s, maybe the late 80s, and they shot portion then, and Jean Leguizamo and all that, they shot like a portion of the movie in a five-month period, sometime in the late 80s, I think, and then they ran out of money, and then the rest of the movie was shot over a period of two years. Mm. Uh, and that's, you know, and so we're talking about, like, the, the rhythm of the film, the fact that it just kind of ends, I, I think a lot of that is tied into very clearly the, the economic status of the film. I mean, it was, mm. it was shot on, I think, on, uh, it was obviously shot on 16 mil, but I think it was shot on, like, you know, whatever what's called, like, loose ends or whatever, you know, the, the leftover clippings from other film productions. Mm -hmm. This was real, you know, absolute makeshift stuff, which I think is is part of what gives the film its charm for me. I'm I'm quite taken with this movie, although I, I would agree with you. I think it, it, it has, there's obvious weaknesses to it. To me, I feel like it's a film that's just got this incredible coiled potential energy throughout it that never quite releases. It never quite finds somewhere to direct it but but kind of seeing it under pressure like this the whole time there's some there's really something here it's a really mm -hmm. there's a real strange energy to this film and it looks and i really can't go over this enough like it looks stupendous this kind of high contrast black and white shot um yeah some of it was shot using natural light and they just kind of filmed in nightclubs they like most of it was shot i think in one nightclub they were able to just get and get from like 2 a.m. to the next morning or probably even later like 4 a.m. to the next morning or whatever um but yeah it's got a, a really interesting kind of vibe to it and it, like all the movies we're discussing it's very much feels like a vampire movie made in the wake of vampire movies so in, in a sense we could call this episode like the you know the sopranos of vampire movies effectively uh it's kind of <laughs> like the theme here is that there's you know these films exist in the wake of a known history of films like this, and they buck the trend in some ways and embrace them in other ways. And Night Owl is probably the most diffuse of that. Um, it's got elements that are reminiscent of Martin. We see, you know, back to to the main character Jake's conversion to being a vampire, his his transformation. But it's it's just got, like you say, kind of an aimlessness. It's a very episodic film. The Leguizamo's attempts to find his sister is sort of um, sporadic throughout the film, and he's <laughs> and he's weird. And to and to be fair, I mean, I'm on record. I will defend Leguizamo through many things. I mean, I think I defended Leguizamo in Spawn because I think my my defense being that whatever he did, he committed to it 100. percent No one knows why exactly that was the direction they went, but that was mm -hmm. Spawn. That's what that movie is, and Leguizamo is 100 percent in it. Well, and, and that's something. I just want to say, I know we're not supposed to talk about this, but I, I'm just going to put it out there because you brought up Leguizamo. Uh, so all of our listeners know uh, Jake, myself, Myros, and Jack, we were all invited to vote in the Sight and Sound poll 
uh, for the top 100 movies. And we all voted uh, John Leguizamo's The Pest as our number That's, one. Yeah, that was the one. 100%. Maybe next effort. year. Maybe yeah. in a decade they'll let Sean get a ballot in and he can he can yeah. put his voice in. He probably put a couple of Wiseman films on there or Maybe something. If Frederick Wiseman did a documentary called Leguiz, uh, it mm-hmm. would make money. But uh, Do you imagine just following not. Leguizamo around for like a year? Just now, I shit. I would so watch exhausting. that. I'd watch the hell out of that movie. <laughs> no, but you know, there's there's this again. Like Leguizamo was incredibly intense in this film, and I think it speaks to there. There's a heavy intensity in this film, and it never quite chooses a given direction, which gives a certain element to it. I mean, there's certainly there's there's a homosexual content to this film, undeniably a homoerotic element to this, in that. Uh, Leguizamo's character is suspicious of Jake as Jake is the last person his sister was seen with. Now he's never, they never pin a murder on her. They never find a body. Uh, But, you know, he's following her or he's following him and he knows, you know, he really feels there's something to do with it. But, you know, at one point he threatens to rape Jake and it's, you know, it's, it's a very loaded scene of two men grappling and moving bodies. They fight at one point in, in a, Apparently in a school playground one night, they just went out and they filmed a fight in freezing New York. Um, and, you, you know, there's like these these elements that there's a sexual, homosexual and, and like element to the film. There's also, I think, just an incredible, generally youthful sexual element to it. Uh, kind of, in a sense, something that kind of reminds me of like Gus Van Sant or more troublingly Larry Clark, but probably not so much that. More Gus Van Sant in that there's like a youth sexual element in this that feels to be documenting it rather than leering at it. Um, I probably I, I feel like I, I, I feel like I've heard enough smart people in the past decade uh, say they like Larry Clark movies that maybe I should revisit them. But Jesus, they just they give me the skeevies just to think about the ones I have seen. But I did watch Kids a couple of years ago as part of like a Harmony Corrine retrospective. And, and I will have to admit, it is actually, it's a pretty damn good movie. So, you know, maybe maybe I'll revisit. But, but you know, I think Night Owl has that same element that it's looking at very beautiful young people, you know, early 20s starting out. And there, there's this kind of like, just vibe to it. There's an energy to it. They're in the clubs, they're hooking up, they're talking, they're kind of figuring stuff out. There, it's kind of catching on to that, and then there's a vampire in the midst, which is maybe the ultimate, you know, gotta figure out what you're doing kind of category in a sense. Um, mm-hmm. but like I say, it it's all it's all there, but it never. There's no like particular scene in Night Owl where you know everything unleashes, which I think all the other movies will discuss, and most movies tend to have like a crescendo, yeah. a, a pathos, a payout. Night Owl doesn't really have that. It's kind of just no. balled up from beginning to end. Even thematically, like it never, it never really explores the ideas that it presents. Everything kind of simmers, but yeah, it just it just never boils over. Uh, and it makes sense too that they started filming this in the '80s because I think it's a rule. Correct me if I'm wrong, but if if you make like a low budget film in New York in the '80s, it's got to be like an allegory for AIDS. So uh, you know that that works with the vampirism, I suppose. Certainly um, there, another, you know, like I say, there, you can, and in a sense, a kind of strong element to this, you can transpose a lot onto this film. It's, it's pretty Yeah, diffuse. it leaves itself open. <laughs> sure. Yeah. You, I um, guess you could say, uh, the other two films we'll discuss tackle this much better, but I guess overall, it just, it actively, it sucks to be a vampire, uh, pun intended. Sure. Uh, like, yeah. like it's such a it's such a miserable experience, and it just like the idea of eternity and existence, and, and like Jake's kind of like 
burned out. I think he has a day job where he's a dishwasher at a diner, and but it, like he just has real no motivation to go to that as well. Um, but yeah, the I I kept hoping like this film was gonna go somewhere, and then l- later on, like towards the ending, we get like this extended interview with Carolyn Monroe from The Spy Who Loved Me, and she talks about her experience of acting in Hammer horror films, and I think the director just was like eager to interview Carolyn Monroe and then put it in his movie, but it it then kind of just fizzles out after that. Like it, it really, uh, really didn't come together in any satisfying way, but uh, the 16 millimeter black and white photography is just always plenty striking. Even if the film certainly has that feel of like, Oh, they only shot this on weekends when cast and crew were available to get together. Like this was a definitely not something that was prioritized over Mm -hmm. the years they made it. Yeah, yeah the, the Monroe interview is a really curious addition. I think it speaks very much into Nadja, uh, you know, and I, I have no idea if there's any connection between these films. Uh, I'm kind of guessing not. I don't know who saw Night Owl, frankly, uh, on its release. Uh, it apparently premiered in L.A. Uh, somehow. That was where, where it was screened. Um, not New York. Uh, but um, yeah, the Carol Monroe interview, which was shot specifically for the film and was shot apparently by... It was shot in Britain uh, at the director's behest. He paid someone to, like, get everyone in there and shoot it, but, they, they you know, he wasn't involved in it. They just mailed him a tape. Uh, they, I think they mailed him a videotape. He then had to, like, scan over and transpose onto other film footage to get into his film. And it, it, it's a very curious thing, because, yeah, she's talking about her time on, like, Captain Kronos, uh, you know, and on vampire films and playing a vampire in the Meatloaf music video, things that Carol Monroe did. Um... You know, so it, it kind of brings in that other trend of or that that element of, you know, vampire cinema and vampire lore into a vampire film. But again, it's I'm I'm not 100 percent sure of the connection uh, with it, the connective tissue. It's much more apparent in, say, Nadja than than here. It feels like a very curious addendum. It, and it's still I think there's there's an interest to it. it it's kind of like. If nothing else, I mean, I think it's fun to hear Carolyn Monroe talk a little bit about her work. She's like a horror icon. But yeah, a, kind of a weird thing that he says he's stumbling around TV and he finds this and um, it just lingers on it. And it's kind of like, but what's what do vampire movies have to do other than, you know, do with the, the, the qualms of, of the people in this movie other than, again, like perhaps the concept that, you know, cinema and vampirism keep young, beautiful people young and beautiful forever um but i think movies do it in a far less insidious way than being an undead murderer so you know your your <laughs> mileage may, may vary on the allegorical aspects but i guess there is there is that kind of concept like a vampire and a movie are both frozen in time um mm-hmm. if if that seems incredibly poetic like just mail me five dollars and uh that'll that'll do that'll do donate to the patreon um, sure. Yeah, but and number one thing you have to remember: if you don't have any money, you can always shoot in high contrast, sixteen millimeter, and it always look great. Uh, that's the one thing I learned from the the film classes that I took in college. Uh, There's just, so many shitty movies that, yeah, like you know, real studio movies. It's like, fuck, this might have been better if they just done that at least. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, yeah, I can I can attest. Like, I made some really shitty garbage, but. Damn, you make shitty garbage. All oh, that that sixteen millimeter film grain. Oof, just it elevates it. That's how you polish a turd up, folks. Anyways, uh, 
Yeah, let's uh, let's move to our next vampire movie, and this one is is interesting because I I don't think this has any sort of restoration or like formal high definition release. It was streaming for free on the was it Lay Cinema Club? Is that yes. uh, yeah, yeah for yeah, a yeah. week for a week, and then if you're like me, you fucked up and forgot to watch it, so you had to watch it on YouTube. Uh, it is on YouTube available right now if you want to just search for that you can you can find it but this is uh nadia from 1994 and kind of odd to me that another one that has just completely flown below the radar uh because one it's this like artsy dreamlike vampire genre film and then it has a fucking david lynch performance and a david lynch producing credit and yet it's sort of just completely forgotten to the sands of time, apparently. And well, until now, shout out Lay Cinema Club. Uh, but yeah, Nadia, which is, uh, aside from a great movie, I also figured out that this had to be the debut of the hit single from the band Space Hog in the meantime. Because I don't think, according to the internet... Their album didn't come out until 1995, and then the, the in the meantime dropped as a single in 96. So the credits of Nadia are the first time that the American public heard Space Hog, and isn't that special, Jack? I mean, I, yeah, it, it sinks in with this film as being, it's inexplicable this hasn't come back in, because this is cult hit written on it. Oh I mean, my god, it, it fucking opens with My Bloody Valentine on right, the soundtrack. exactly, yeah. Come on! I mean, the, the soundtrack is... Portis head! Yeah, the soundtrack is My Bloody Valentine and Portis head. Like, it's it's the hippest 90s artifact imaginable with David Lynch in a little cameo. Um, God, it's got, like, Peter Fonda showing up. It's got, like, you know, old and young coalescing in this, this dreamy black and white film. Um... Like, if I have any complaint about the film particularly, it's almost that it feels almost too consciously cultivated as, like, a hip art house kind of a movie. Mm -hmm. You know, it really, you know, almost... The, the first thing is, like, you know, oh, it's so cool when I hear that, you know, My Bloody Valentine opens up and it's like, God, I love this song, I love this album, that's so cool, this should be in every movie. But then it's also like, oh, you know what, like, in the 90s for a while when that first came out and everything, like, people were kind of insufferable about it and they, you know... So, yeah, it's kind of like... uh there's that element to it but yeah i i you know it's this is much more writ large in this film the the concept of it being very much like a postmodern vampire movie i guess or a metatextual vampire movie i mean they they stick in footage of bela lugosi in this movie when talking about mm -hmm. vampires um and it's just it's again just it's much more dreamlike and diffuse in its cinematography compared to Night Owl, which is much more like the high contrast, like jarring, like searing whites and complete empty blacks. Uh, this is much more kind of, although it's hard to say because it looks like crap. Uh, it really mm -hmm. could do with a, with a review, you know, revisit, but like it's got a much more kind of softer look. And then also uh, Almereda, um, the director, um, does a lot of the film in this kind of, I think what it was called pixel vision is what the, the term he came up for it. And, I, and I'm not 100% sure how this was done. So far as I can tell, it looks like he got some kind of a toy camera mm -hmm. uh, that was able to like imprint an incredibly low resolution image on 
I'm not even sure what kind of film or tape. Oh, it's it's insane. It it's like uh, so. This is like a Fisher Price toy from the late '80s. Okay, like it is it is a toy, right? <laughs> and it shot film onto essentially like audio cassette tapes. Like that that was the the format. Right, that's that's what I saw, and I was like, is that even possible? I didn't know you could do an optical exposure on fucking magnetic tape, but I maybe yeah. they found a way. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why it looks weird and you know the the aspect ratio is so weird but that's what gives it this haziness to it right well because he because he took that and he blew it up to 35 mil yeah like this was yeah. shot on 35 mil or at least those sections were blown up so it gives this it is a really striking effect because it's this very hard-edged pixelated look that was the mm -hmm. original resolution and then the 35 millimeter blow up gives this clarity to the lack of clarity in a way like i like frames out the pixelation to give it this really peculiar look, and it's it's certainly something. I believe he's done it, and he did it in several films. I'm I don't think this was even the first one he did it, and it was almost like a director trademark. Now I'd this be amazed is the if it's same. Later movies. This is the same technology that that boomers use on Facebook when they're when they're sharing memes about you know uh, like Ron DeSantis and how it's cool <laughs> when he sends immigrants to to Martha's Vineyard or whatever. It is, uh, yeah, no, it's it's true. It's when 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 boomers are on the internet, you it's you kind of never knew that like you couldn't. I didn't think you could photocopy images on the internet and then photocopy them again and again until they were completely illegible. But somehow, yeah. somehow Why they found out a way like, to do that digitally. All your relatives that are over the age of sixty five, like the just the the visual degradation of their memes is is unacceptable i don't understand be, how they do it it's like they're a factory somewhere just like washing these images and just laundering them to to meme yeah. meme capabilities yeah they're just like no that fucking that minion holding up a confederate flag looks too sharp we gotta we gotta soften the edges and what they're doing they're like they're getting a jpeg and they're saving it as a png and they're saving it back to a jpeg and then they're saving it as a word document and then they're trying to pull the data it's incredible work and yeah, yeah, this is like the cinematic equivalent. It's it's a, a very curious element. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wanted to say that uh, one, you can kind of view this film as a, a stealth Hal Hartley movie because um, our main vampire, played by uh, Alina Lowenson, who appeared in several of his films, and uh, Jim, the nephew of Van Helsing, is played by Martin Donovan, who's also a uh, Hartley regular. And it's very much, it's got the same kind of pacing and deadpan humor of, of a Hartley film. Um, but also I think we need to acknowledge this director, Michael Almereda. Um, he, all of his films seem to have this fascination with anachronisms. Um, like he, uh, he made the 2000 Hamlet where Ethan Hawke's walking through a blockbuster. And uh, he's actually a couple years ago released Tesla where Ethan Hawke is Nikolai Tesla, but at the end he sings a karaoke uh, Tears for Fear song. I uh, don't know if you knew that, Steve. But I did not. <laughs> yeah, this is a uh, this is the basically it's the story of Dracula just told in contemporary uh, New York where uh, yeah Van Helsing is a real guy but he has to take a bicycle around town and I don't know I think there's just something very offbeat and charming about this whole movie uh, it's such a and, but it it's so, totally plays it straight too which I love mm -hmm. and that the does, Van it Helsing like, is a crazy uncle 
Uh, yeah, he's just a crazy uncle. He's bailed out of prison for staking a guy through the heart. I mean, that's <laughs> what more do you I'm want? I'm curious what the bail set for that, considering there were witnesses. Uh, I'm <laughs> amazed he was able to oh, raise that the it's bail also money a fucking for that. murder. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. No, he murdered someone with a stake through the heart in front of people, and they kind of like set bail, and his nephew went downtown to pick him up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it is fun because. I don't know, like, everything is done with this deadpan seriousness, but also you feel like they're kind of fucking with you constantly. Uh, and there's the dreamy quality to it, so you could you could really feel, like, Lynch's influence on this, uh, which is why it's great that he plays, like, a goofy fucking morgue guard. <laughs> Yeah, we um, don't we don't get to see him attacked by vampires at all. Uh, it's no. kind of both, actually both films, because uh, to... Like, swing back, both these movies are kind of, like, fueled a little bit by, um... But, like, the, the people involved in them were very invested in them. Because this film has Peter Fonda, and they absolutely could not afford Peter Fonda. They, they couldn't. But, uh, apparently Eric Stoltz was the original, uh, Van Helsing character. He was originally gonna play someone in the movie, and he couldn't make it, but he was dating Bridget Fonda at the time. So he was able to get the script to Bridget's dad, Peter Fonda. And Peter Fonda apparently was taken enough with it that he basically did the movie for SAG Minimum. He just, you know, he showed up and apparently... Wow. Yeah, so so he showed up for, for SAG Minimum and apparently he would like, he just, he'd open like, like vintage bottles of wine every night on on set after it was done and they just pour it out and share it with everyone they just drink really expensive wine and hang out with peter fonda which <laughs> seems like a pretty cool thing to do i was worth going yeah. back to night owl because we talked about like as jean leguizamo was certainly his star had risen considerably between 1985 or whenever he first contracted with the movie and when it came out in 94 or 93 even um apparently leguizamo at one point went to jeffrey arsenault and um the director of the film, and basically wrote him a check for Leguizamo's entire salary and just gave it back to him to finish the movie. Oh, wow. Because uh, he'd come up, you know, he, he had come up enough he was getting into major projects at that point. So the, this, the kind of support these films engender and the people they're in, they're, it gives a real kind of plays into, you know, kind of a real chamber drama feel to them. They're very enclosed films. They feel like they take place in in New York, but very much in a in a it kind of a magical internal New York. Nadja almost is like, it's like Vim Vender's vampire movie. I don't think he's gotten around mm -hmm. to making one of those yet, but it has that same kind of like hip sensibility to it. It opens with, uh, with, with the lead actors talking about all the major European cities and how difficult it is to find food in them at night. And of course <laughs> she is talking about, you, you could interpret that both ways. It's like the restaurants aren't open at night, but also people aren't around at night. And she talks about how New York is so much better for, from that, which is, you know, a, a legitimate logistical uh, concern for for a vampire. And it is it's a really odd film. Uh, Jay mentioned like Hal Hartley, who I know Hal Hartley saw this movie because I seem to recall Scooter McRae talking about Shatterdead. And he talked to I think he mentioned he talked to Hal Hartley at the, the premiere of Nadja about shooting a movie on digital. And now it occurs to me or shooting a video on like on video. Because uh, Hal Hartley apparently had this great idea, he was going to do it, and then uh, Scooter McRae explained to him that people had actually been doing that for quite a while, and he was <laughs> one of those people. Hal Hartley didn't kind of realize that, and now I realize they apparently they may have had that conversation right after watching a movie in Pixel Vision, which is mm. uh, the next step down some some magical new low point of fidelity that they found, which you know Amoreta employs I think really interestingly. There, there's it gives this. Um, 
kind of, like we say, a dreamlike quality in a general sense. It's it's a very unspecific film um, in how it employs its elements. It's got, you know, references to old films. It's a shot of, like, the old castle that I am... I could swear, honestly, the shot looks to me like it's lifted from Murnau's uh, Finances the Grand Duke, but I bet it's from, like, Nosferatu or something more common than that. But, like, it just, it's like a huge castle overhanging on a, on a beach, on a cliff. Um, but it looks like it's lifted straight from a silent movie. From a silent movie I feel like I've definitely seen, but I don't remember which one it is. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's kind of just a strange movie about vampires finding their own way, because the point of this is essentially that Van Helsing has murdered Dracula and Dracula is dead, and he's trying to f take care of the body, get rid of it. Dracula has, has many children around the world, and they're apparently all raving lunatics. They're, they're like, yeah. half It's kind of like proto-succession, but with vampires in Essentially. a lot of ways. So he has, two, he has two children, twins, a son and a daughter, who are actually from a woman he actually loved, and they, they through, I guess, his love for the mother, actually came out to be like Dracula himself, fully capable and, and powerful. And they don't get on with each other. They're they're very much one wants to reject vampire living and the other wants to embrace it. And there's familial discord at the heart of it. Uh, and meanwhile, all the women are, I mean, like, fundamental to this is there's a strange sense of inevitability. And I guess it, it the, the plays into the closeness of the film is that everyone in this movie ends up like it's like it's like Paul Haggis's crash. It's like it's set in New York, but everyone knows each other and everyone runs into each other ultimately over and over again to the point that Van Helsing's nephew uh, his wife, who's played by Galaxy Hayes, I believe, um, or a fiance maybe, uh, she goes out and she meets the vampire. She meets uh, Lowenstein's vampire, and they go home and they end up accidentally sleeping together because that's what happens in pixel vision. So mm -hmm. it's very, very, you know, demure and, and artistic. Uh, none of that sordid lesbianism you'd find in a Larry Clark movie. <laughs> and then, uh, and then they, you know, they 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 do that, and then they separate, and then they, you know, everyone keeps meeting each other, you know, um, which I, you know, I'm not sure what to make of it exactly. It's just such a peculiar film. It feels almost again like Guy Madden film as well. Just that sort of, it's just kind of doing its own thing for reasons I'm gonna admit I'm not a hundred percent certain why, but I was not having a bad time observing the film just sort of meander through whatever it felt it needed to do yeah it, it is it's kind of like an easy watch too because it is it's very dreamy and meandering but it's also kind of like episodic in in how it's divided up so uh yeah it's just it's a breezy fun watch and a it's, real head yeah. scratcher like it's, i don't it's understand much why more people aren't fucking into this movie like this should be a big deal and it's it not. feels like if any if, if firstly it feels like someone i mentioned this on twitter the other day and, and someone responded and just kind of mentioned in their own you know kind of estimation of the film they're absolutely right it said like any blu-ray label could release this movie it would fit in everywhere it would fit in mm -hmm. on criterion it would fit in on vinegar syndrome it would fit both of them perfectly it is yeah. all those you know art house creds and weird oddball creds that you know are completely satisfied Listen, um, not not Kino though, man, because they skimp on the special features. So they well, they they would, but they they'd still release it because Kino would release, release anything. Oh, uh, Kino will fucking anything. do Darby O'Gill in a box set with it. They don't give a shit. They'll just <laughs> do whatever they want, um, which you know a charming facet of them maybe. But uh, yeah, it, it just feels like this film is ripe for rediscovery. It it just it seems like one of these films that people are you know absolutely vibe to, as kids say. Um, and it feels to me like much more 
you know, I maybe don't like this as much as Night Owl ultimately, and that's kind of because I'm just so fascinated by Night Owl's hard edges. It's a really angular kind of like concentrate experience, and Nudge is very much the di uh, very different. It's a much more billowy, soft, strange kind of a thing. Uh, mm. But I, you know, it's definitely one I'm. I will watch this again. I, I really hope someone does fix it, you know, or restore it because. You know, I'm looking at it like we an old DVD rip I got, and I was watching it just going like, man, I can tell this movie looks great, but I can't see it, you know? It did. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So all, all the all the label guys listening out there, just uh, just put this one out. They'll sell like hotcakes, we promise. Like if David Lynch is a producer, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, who, who seems is like a no-brainer. Who's got a fucking phone numbers for Criterion? Who tell, tell you who what? We'll uh, we'll we'll do we'll do an audio commentary track for you too. How that? How's that? We'll throw that Where in. Where we just, just talk just about how we didn't out. really get the movie, but we like it. Yeah, we're just like yeah, I'll we dig that. it. It's a vibe. Yeah, it'll be great. Yeah. It'll be in fantastic. this scene. Uh, David Lynch plays the morgue attendant and uh, has some really funny looks. There is discussion, I believe, that this movie may take place in the Twin Peaks universe, uh, and I can't remember why. Wait, doesn't Lost thing. Highway take place in the Twin Peaks yes, universe? Yes, because Lost too? Highway does as well, and I think there's there's some overlap between the two, but I forget what it is. Honestly, I, I also am not sure that will actually lead to anything useful for anyone, because no, I'm no not one. quite sure while watching the the plight of Laura Palmer, uh, what elements are worth coming from that and the 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 atomic bomb unleashing an energy in the modernity of the world a new sin born at what you know value is added to that by knowing dracula exists yeah <laughs> you know and i'm guessing some nerd probably just asked david lynch at a, at a q a or something like 10 years ago and he just went yes and then didn't <laughs> actually explain it 100 <laughs> percent possible yeah so uh, well, shit, we should probably get to the, uh, what I would consider to be the, the filet of, uh, our, our trilogy here of, of New York vampire movies from the nineties, uh, both because I think it's brilliant and, uh, scuzzy as hell, which is a great way to describe almost anything Abel Ferrero's ever done. And, uh, this is the addiction. It's smart. It's kind of grimy. It's, uh, it's real heady, man. Uh, but holy shit, what a great fucking movie. And I like movies where I feel a little bit dumb watching it. Uh, but at the same time, I don't need to understand everything to kind of get on board with it. I just kind of ride the wave. And uh, Abel Ferreira wants me to ride the wave because he he doesn't give a shit. And honestly, when if, if you're going to watch The Addiction, obviously watch The Addiction. But buy the Arrow Blu-ray specifically so that you can listen to Abel Ferreira's commentary track on this movie, because it is maybe better. Like if, if the movie's a four star movie, his commentary track is like fucking five and a half. It's, it's transcendent. He does all the, I think on the, on the King of New York movie, he had like on the commentary, he, he repeatedly comes back to the fact that he's only there because they're paying him. Like, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the Ferrara experience. It's so and I, great. And I, I am there for all day. Oh yeah, we we were talking about it before we started recording, but like literally, like someone will be on screen or something, will be like, "Oh, it's Russell Simmons. That's Russell. I know him." <laughs> what? <laughs> the fuck? Great, I, yeah, man. The addiction is like this. Is such a wild <laughs> film. I mean, it's it's like first of all, like it's eighty-two minutes long. It's like it's maybe okay. It's a second shortest because Night Owl is like not even eighty minutes. Uh, but like it's 82 minutes. It's this incredibly concentrate film about a vampire in New York. Um, 
it just has a bunch of people quoting Feuerbach and Nietzsche and and Sartre, etc. Um, and then it's like a, a movie about, I know it's a Catholic movie. It's like fucking like mean streets Catholic movie. Uh, but about vampires, it's it's such a, a wild mixture of elements uh, helmed as usual by Ferrara. I mean, it, it's just the, the imagery is incredible. There's this, like I say, the concentrateness. There's like every scene in this hits. There's this street level feel to it because Ferrara will be the first to tell you they didn't have any fucking permits. They went out and they shot on the street. <laughs> he just pointed the camera at things. That's what filmmakers do. If you don't do that, you're an idiot. Yeah, that's uh, 100%. You know, you just got to get enough money to keep the unions happy and then you make a movie and it's not complicated. Why the fuck are you asking them all these questions? That's Abel Ferrara. Oh, absolutely. Um, and you yeah. got to remember, this is an Abel Ferrara movie. So I, I think there's there's some intimidating factors that that come with the addiction, specifically that this is like a PhD philosophy student. And there are these extended conversations about philosophy and all this shit. But let that just wash over you. Basically, everything you need to know thematically in this movie, you can get 95% of it in the opening 15 minutes uh, before they start, you know, spouting philosophical shit at you. Uh, one is just, it, it, it likes, the, the movie itself likes to interrogate the idea of individual morality and what's good and what's evil. And there's this great discussion in the beginning because Abel Ferrari, he used like actual Holocaust footage and actual footage of uh, innocent people being slaughtered in Vietnam because uh, these students are taking this class on, I don't know, uh, horrible shit to look at or something. I'm, I'm not sure what the class is. But then they get into this discussion. It's like, oh, yeah, like the Americans that slaughtered these Vietnamese people, there were two guys that went to prison for it. But what about like the American military industrial complex that made them go over and do this shit? Or, you know, what about all the napalm that was dropped on innocent people. Uh, and, and, you know, because that was done from an airplane and not from point blank range, it's somehow justified. They get all this stuff. And so as vampires, they're basically wrestling with that. It's like this, this idea of like how they exercise their power over people who aren't vampires and, and what's right and what's wrong. And ultimately they're just kind of nihilistic about it. So that's point one. And point two, it's in the fucking title. Uh, basically vampirism is treated as it's it's like a disease and uh it's it's yeah it's like being addicted to heroin and all of the the ways that it the vampirism affects uh kathleen played by lily taylor who's amazing in this uh it, it looks like people who are withdrawing from heroin so i mean obviously it's like a one-to-one -one thing and there's there's some real able for our shit in this too where like he there's this one part where she really needs a fix and instead of murdering someone, she finds like a passed out junkie on the street and like takes a bloody syringe from him and then fucking takes the blood and, and shoots it into herself. <laughs> like, oh, it's uh, it's just a plus primo shit. It's yeah. I mean, I suppose it's important to mention this is a Nicholas St. John script, and I think probably that's very important. He wrote a lot of Ferrara's work through. I mean, they they grew up together, I think. So they've been working together since like as early as like Nine Lives of a Wet Pussy, like when they were making literal porn. The good stuff, baby. Yeah, yeah he did. You know? He did Miss Forty Five. He did Driller Killer. Like, yeah, he yeah. did Wet Pussy. Like all that. So, shit. so he, you know, and and I think it's it's so you know from that obviously, and it's it's interesting because April Ferrara said um, he does he, like there's no collaboration in the script. 
St. John just writes scripts and just, he would just write scripts and just send them to Farrar and they'd just be, you know, as far as he was concerned, just ready to shoot. There was yeah. no collaboration on that. He just, he produced these scripts and Farrar would, would shoot them, which is really interesting considering this is such a, an, uh, towards the end, an overtly Catholic film. It's, it's a <laughs> film about, um, what we say, salvation. Um, but it is, yeah, it's it's a movie about vampirism. It's about drug addiction, drawing an allegory between the two of them, but also about, as you say, like architectures of of ethics and morality. Um, and it's it's such a it's a really strange film because um, I mean, Farrar is not exactly someone I would think of it being. He he is an art house filmmaker, but he's not someone that I would think of. You know, when I think of Farrar, I think like highfalutin, you know, ideas. You know, he's not like. Tarkovsky, for example, no. as someone who's like a very art house, Stalworth kind of a person. Farrar is undoubtedly an incredibly intelligent, thoughtful artist, but he's also got this incredible, like, roll up your sleeves, blue collar kind of like a sensibility in how he produces his films. Um, and so it, it, this is a film that's really interesting because it's set in, uh, f- obviously, in like an NYU philosophy department or something like graduate students uh, working on their PhDs. And it kind of backs into the concept that essentially philosophy to a large degree inherently is people trying to formulate reasons to justify what they just want to do anyway. Um, Which I think is something I think a lot of philosophers would take incredible offense at and then also probably agree with you and they kind of like, yes, but we're trying to get better about it. Uh, you know, that's a very interesting topic. We'll discuss it more in relation to why this philosopher did it right. This one did it wrong. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a film about the morality and the ethics of, of from starting from the Holocaust, etc. To when when our protagonist becomes a vampire, she kind of embraces a nihilism with this. And the film ultimately rejects it. It's It's a film that I think has a great deal to kind of the damage that she she inflicts around her as she picks off victims and indeed builds a small little army of, of vampires, which leads to an incredible conclusion of the film. It's almost like, it reminded me like of Cronenberg's Shivers, almost like where there's a, a philosophy faculty party, essentially, it's a, celebrating her PhD, and then they all just get devoured by vampires. Absolutely wild scene. I, I can't, Great you know. Shit. Like I say, Shivers is about the closest analog I can think of in any other movie or something like of of just such you know, visceral horror visited on, you know, white collar kind of like upper class people. Um, so there's this strong like rejection, I think. I think the, you know, the film feels like it has this rejection of of uh, a certain insidious, um, what would you say, kind of like intellectualism. It's not, a, you know, mm-hmm. w- over intellectualizing things is what led us or can lead us to kind of you know breaking down like how does war happen war has to happen with a certain intellectual veneer over it there has to be a kind of like a, a sorry there's a reason animals don't go to war effectively no other animals organize wars that's in solely human endeavor and it comes about from the fact that humans are able to create institutions and values within those that then inevitably lead towards global conflict you know it's it's a solely human thing uh, you know, I think he's approaching drug addiction the same way and saying, like, we can't, the nihilism is the wrong way. You know, we have to kind of move back into ourselves. A very clear element within this is that all of these vampires have choices. You know, they, they 
you know, they don't have to indulge this, but they feel the need to because the addiction pushes them to do it. But mm-hmm. also the addiction is something they can rationalize. They can, they can move around. You know, you can, you can debate with it as hard as it would be. Um, and yeah, it's such a peculiar film. It's a brilliant film. It's, it's just such a, it's, there's so much in here in terms of the way to go, because then you meet Christopher Walken, Oh, he's so great. He's like the functional junkie. Yeah, the function. (laughs) He's the functional addict, essentially. We need to spend, yeah, a few minutes on Walken here. This is one of my favorite Ferrara films, and I think the sequence where she meets Christopher Walken is maybe one of the best and most fascinating things he's done. But yeah, functional junkie. She tries to uh, capture him in the middle of the night, and he's walking home, and then he turns the tables on her. We find out he's been a vampire for like over forty years in New York. And he's he knows what she's going through and he like he's basically retrained his body to be as human as he can. Like he says he even defecates. Uh, That's my which favorite some, part. Yeah, I defecate. <laughs> when was the last time you did that? Uh, and it's it's just such a I, a, I can't think of a better actor to do to like pull off this little monologue he has. But also just yeah, just the idea that, you know, there's many of these creatures out there and how like the what it what it like the cost of of going so far as to as to learn to be human again and living with your your sickness uh it's incredible just yeah exactly it's incredible i mean i too define my humanity by my ability to take shit so i get it it's such a fantastic (laughs) through line between like vampirism and hardcore drug usage is that like you, I mean, we can both intrinsically understand. Like, I mean, bowel movements are a real thing in both of those. I guess vampires mm-hmm. theoretically don't eat real food. Junkies, their whole systems are messed up. Who knows? So you know, it, it's yeah. There's this incredible kind of like analog that they, they kind of like the 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 various levels just perfectly map onto each other. And it's but it's really interesting because she meets she's embraced nihilism. She's basically said like I am now a new greater being and i have to do what i want to do because i i have to do it because i want to do it and i want to do it because i'm special now i'm i'm something greater than i was and really you know she's she's basically circular logicking herself towards i have to do it because it's what i'd like to just do it's a path of least resistance she meets christopher walken who we say is the functional addict who has come up with his own system but he's still an addict he still is that and then the film brings in the finale this, you know, overtly Catholic salvation concept, which I think is also interesting. Um, and this is something I watched a little thing like with uh, the critic Brad Stevens talked about. And I think he's, I, you know, uh, this I don't know where my opinion on this will lie in the future, but like he does point out there is a strange disconnect in the end, which is really funny because if you watch Abel Ferrara talk about this movie, he's, he seems absolutely gobsmacked that anyone could think that the ending is ambiguous he's like literally like no it's clear like we nailed this what the fuck are you talking about like she found god she's it's salvation it's jesus christ like we it's all in the movie what what you know it's clear as a bell like literally his phrase like it's clear as a bell and everyone's like no it's not that clear and it is it is kind of interesting because it's very literally clear that she is dying in hospital and a priest, a Catholic priest comes in, reads her the last rites, forgives her, gives her the sacrament of communion, 
and then she lays a flower on her own grave and walks away dressed in white for the first time in the movie walks away and it's like she's her old self her addicted self is dead and she's found salvation through jesus christ our lord and savior fantastic that's all there 100 percent. but also that final scene in the graveyard from ferrara directing it is peculiarly low-key you know, for for a scene of grand salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think there is, you know, an argument you said that, you know, there is a, maybe a gap between the writer and the director on that. Um, you know, kind of in the same way, I think maybe some of Scorsese's, you know, his his vision of, of you know, Catholicism and stuff in, in Mean Streets. There's like, there's a, there's a searching, but there's, there's a gap between the merch, you know, which, between, you know, Scorsese and Schrader and, and, and Taxi Driver. There's like, they're not, they're not entirely in sync with each other and what they actually believe, and it creates this interesting dynamic when one tr- translates the other's work to the screen. I think that is here, um, but you know, all of this really goes to show, like this, this movie looks like the tackiest thing imaginable. It's a black and white, low budget New York vampire movie, and literally, we're dealing with salvation and the you know ethics of institutional catastrophes. <laughs> In, you know, in, in 82 minutes, that's it. Yeah, it's, uh, it's fantastic. And yeah, another movie too, that I think whether you're into Ferreira's like uh, more highbrow, critically acclaimed stuff or his, you know, sleazy early exploitation stuff, I don't think the addiction gets talked about enough. And it's, uh, it's really one of his best movies easily. Uh, it's, it's, it's special. So it is, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I think certainly the first two movies you've talked about here are like really interesting kind of kind of curios, uh, kind of interesting products of a time and a place and, and low budget limitations. The Addiction is, I think, like a must see movie. It's yeah. this is key cinema. Mm-hmm. Important shit. All right. Well, uh, we're going we're gonna to wrap things up. So, Jack, what are you putting over this week? That's a very good question. What have I, what have I been doing for the last uh, what while? You, what have you been doing for the past month and a half? Come on! Uh, fucking picking up trinkets in New England. I think I think we already oh went over boy. that. I'll tell Buying you what I'm jam on the side of the road. See, you know what I'm not going to put over is "Don't Worry, Darling," which uh, I watched recently, and I have to say, if a 12 year old wrote it, I think it would be pretty cool. But uh, about four adults wrote it, and it's really ah. Really just not a great movie. You heard it here first, folks. Harry Styles, yeah. keep your day job. It's, it's a, here's the funny thing. Harry Styles is fine in this. All the people are like, oh, he's such a bad actor. No, he's fine. That's not what's wrong with this movie. This movie's like Florence Pugh. She's great. She's doing really good work. Olivia Wilde, she's she's doing her in front of the camera. I mean, she's, she's selling it. It's a bit goofy, her role in the whole thing. But just, God, it's such an incredibly literal one-to-one, like, oh, men are bad movie. And I don't need, I hang out on Twitter. I'm just fucking, I know all these terrible things. People who just let slip much worse things day to day on the internet. So I just, I don't understand why this movie happened or exists. And it's kind of a shame because I, you know, they all hate each other now, which is super funny. Uh, but it didn't make a good movie at all. So that's, that's a shame. Like if everyone's going to hate each other, you'd think that at least there'd be like some tension in the movie. There isn't. It's just boring. So, um... So that's mm-hmm. I'm putting that over. Ed, just, putting I'm putting over. I'm putting <laughs> over two hours, three minutes of time that you should devote to not watching that film and maybe go for a walk instead. Yeah. 
I that's I think that's great great advice. So I'll I'll take that. So Jack putting over going for a walk for two hours. Yeah, <laughs> Jake, what are you putting over this week? Uh, let's see. Uh, fuck it, I'm putting over Chainsaw Man. It's, a, <laughs> it's almost yeah, the same. You made that up. I swear to God, I did not. Uh, based on a manga, now adapted into an anime series. Uh, the force as of this recording, the first four episodes have dropped on Hulu. It's about a guy who is uh infected by a demon and turns into a chainsaw man where his head and his two arms become working chainsaws and he kills giant fucking monsters with them and that's all you really need to know if that sounds like something you want to see uh please the first episode is on hulu check it out i was hoping you were i was hoping you were going to say he was infected by chain like he was bitten by a, a rabbit chainsaw (laughs) <laughs> no so what he meets a little dog it's a cute little demon dog that has a chainsaw coming out of its nose and they're both attacked and dismembered by the mob and the chainsaw dog like combines their blood and then gives him the powers of the chainsaw man and then next thing you know he's now this deadly killing machine and he works for this like secret government agency that that destroys monsters on the regular it's it's a it's it's a lot of fun Fucking rips and shreds, as the kids say. All right. Just Google Chainsaw uh, Man. That's all you need. I I just did, and actually it looks kind of cool. So maybe maybe I'll watch your hentai, Jake. We'll see. Uh, I'm not going to go for a walk, though. You there's know, no, you there's know no, I feel there's no fucking in it. Oh, oh well, shit. Uh, then maybe well, I won't yet. tune in. <laughs> or is there? Uh, well, I'm going to put over a little movie this week called Burnt Offerings. Uh, you know, we got the hentai, we got the light exercise. How about a little fucking horror cinema in your life? A little classic horror cinema. This one's from 1976. It's from our boy Dan Curtis, who did Trilogy of Terror and, uh, like, not a lot of shit that you've probably seen. Uh, I think he did a lot of Dark Shadows episodes. So, uh, real workmanlike background as far as filmmakers go, but holy shit, this is so good. It's kind of like a, it's like a proto The Shining, essentially. I wouldn't be surprised if if Stephen King, I, I mean, I don't know when the fuck Stephen King wrote The Shining, but I wouldn't be surprised if he got inspiration from this. And listen to this cast, all right? Uh, how's this sound to you? You like this, Jack? Karen Black, Oliver Reed, Burgess Meredith, Betty Davis, like on the verge of death. I, <laughs> what else do you fucking need? Uh, and it's it's basically just about this family. They go to this summer house. It's kind of weird and dilapidated. And then it, slowly like fucks with them and sucks the life out of them and as they go insane and terrible things happen to them the house starts to basically like repair itself and become renewed again it's it's fantastic it's so 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 good uh it's it's like a master class in how to do uh just just real good old school horror and not having to lean on you know gore or gimmicks or jump scares or anything like this that thing, this thing this thing sounds potato shit this sounds rife for remake as like a shitty gentrification allegory elevated horror movie. Yes, 100%. No, that's the thing. Because this was made, and, and the way that it's made too is brilliant, because you can tell that Curtis is, is a guy who is constantly thinking about, like, will I get this on television or not? It's basically shot like a, like a little bit of an elevated made-for-TV movie, but it's the way that it's broken up and the fact that it's it's such a tight short movie too it's entirely made to be broadcast on television there's no doubt in my mind uh but it's it's so fucking good but if this was made today if you just picked up this script 
Jesus Christ. It would be some A24 fucking fodder. Not not acceptable. So, yeah, just watch watch Burn Offerings. I think it's streaming on on Amazon maybe right now. I don't know. It's classic. You, you can no, no one knows. No one knows what's on Amazon. Amazon yeah, won't tell you. steal it. I don't care. Dan Kerr's probably dead. He doesn't care. If he's not, he's rich. It's fine. Uh, but yeah, Burn Offerings. Watch that one. And if you listen to this podcast, you probably noticed there's a link in the description. And what will that link do for you? Great question. Uh, that'll take you to our Patreon page. And y- you can give us money. Jack, why would someone want to give us money? What a silly thing to do. Well, I mean, I think there's a lot of benefits to giving me money. Um, mm-hmm. And you guys probably need some stuff. To, I don't know. Yeah, I, I mean, give podcasting, me money. podcasting costs money. Uh, Jake's got fucking diapers to buy. Jake, how expensive are diapers? You're probably like, in diapers in this economy? And you just let Dalton shit on the floor, don't you? I mean, no, we certainly don't. Uh, but <laughs> not just diapers. <laughs> yeah. But, Have but you diapers are expensive, maybe, too. maybe this is like the life hack you need. Just let her... Because yeah. my dog shits on the floor, and frankly, she seems to get away with it just fine, so... Yeah, you think you think if it was socially acceptable to shit on the floor, I wouldn't be shitting everywhere? Because I would. So, yeah, yeah maybe this is the next step. We'd have a designated step. shit floor room. Wait, no, we need the money for the diapers. You can't shit on the floor. Give us yeah. money. Yeah, give us money or everyone on the podcast is just going to shit on the floor. That's a guarantee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I'd say so, one advantage of uh, giving us money is uh, maybe this is what you're going to say, Steve. Uh, but people can choose what we watch and hear their our thoughts on. That's right. Is that right. That is 100 percent right. Uh, maybe you're upset because we didn't do Wes Craven's Vampire in Brooklyn. You're like, God damn, why don't you do Vampire in Brooklyn? And uh, uh, was Friedman and Seltzer's Vampire Sucks? Why, why didn't you guys do those two movies? Those are my two favorite vampire movies. You're saying to yourself right now. You could donate like $25 and then you get to choose that episode. That's our future. But but you need to give us money in order to make that happen. So a lot of options out there for you. Get if you the, donate get the Don't the, Worry Darling cast running. Oh, people are, they're begging for it. They're begging for it. When, when Sean was like, yeah, like Don't Worry Darling and Men are two of the worst movies I've seen this year. Uh, I, I got to say it, 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 you know, it, it tickled the back of my brain a little bit. And I thought, ooh, maybe I should, maybe I should watch those. Uh, it's a ringing anti-endorsement, but I haven't done it yet. You throw that money down, I'll watch that shit. I don't give a fuck. Uh, also, yeah, $5, you get to vote on future content for a podcast. That's exciting. Uh, also, if you donate at any level, whether it's $2 or $25, if you live in the continental United States, I will send you a movie in the mail. In fact, I got I to gotta do that this week. We got a new patron. I got I to gotta send some shit out. So I'm going to the fucking post office. Somebody's getting a movie. This week, it's happening. Uh, so yeah, a lot of great reasons. Even if you think we're shitheads, I think getting a free movie in the mail is that's pretty cool. So why not? Uh, maybe maybe it'll be season three of The Sopranos on a DVD box set. Wouldn't that be fun to get? Wouldn't you like that? We all would. Yeah, Dalton likes it. This guy loves Tony Soprano. Give that kid some gabagool. Am I right? All right. Uh, well, I think that about wraps things up. So yeah, if, if you have any questions, comments, death threats, marriage proposals, optimismvaccine at gmail.com, or you can tweet at us at optimismvaccine and Jake slash Dalton. The last word is yours. Wow. I'm a vampire. 